Greetings, ladies and mendigants, and welcome to this latest episode of Tales from Outer Space. Taken from the subreddit HFY. The links to all the stories will be down below, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please consider subscribing. Story number one. Fourteen beings left, one stayed back. Written by Alt Cipher. Professor, I don't understand the reading assignment, Laura said. Professor Wei took his reading glasses off and turned to her. Which part of it? Well, all of it, I guess. No, that's not right. Why are we reading this? You're an anthropology professor, and you've got us reading a physics textbook. Laura said she sat down on the one uncluttered chair in the professor's office. Stacks of paper climbed towards the ceiling and made the room feel stuffy. Yes, I am an anthropology professor, and yes, that is a physics textbook. Do you know what my specialty is, Laura? Xenoanthropology, she said. Close enough. So, what does xenoanthropology mean? Laura paused for a moment, wary of the rhetorical trap. The study of ancient alien civilizations? Very good. Now, how many ancient alien civilizations have we found? Uh, there have been 14 known alien civilizations, and some theories estimate up to several thousand more, Laura said. Correct. 14 known, maybe many more unknown. Now, Tommy, what is the Fermi Paradox? The Fermi Paradox is a apparent contradiction between her highly probable estimates of other intelligent life in the universe and the apparent lack of any civilization. But, Professor, the Fermi Paradox has an answer. They're all dead, Laura said. Yes, first, well done on reciting the textbook definition of the Fermi Paradox. Well, we'll get to the other part in a moment. But can you explain to me the Fermi Paradox in your own words, in plain English? Well, um... Laura said. Space is really big, and there are billions of stars and tens as many planets. Everywhere we look, we should be seeing some kind of evidence of life. Radio signals or ships or something, Laura said. Not bad. That is more or less the correct statement. Now go back to your earlier statement. They're all dead. Explain that to me, please. There is no evidence of intelligent life because there isn't any left. There have been many other civilizations, but they've all died, Laura said. Have you studied any of those alien civilizations? The professor asked. Sure, in grade school, up through high school. Goldman's aliens, the Cheney, the Tala, Laura said. And what did you learn about them? Well, they're all really different. Goldman's were a primary aquatic species that the technology had based in hydraulics. The Tala were strict carnivores who never developed farming from what we can tell. All true, but I was thinking about what the things are in common amongst all of them. What trait or traits do they all 14 known alien species share? Well, they're all dead, I guess. True. Go on. They all were relatively close to us, within the galaxy that we're in and on the side of it. Also true. Let me ask you this. How many worlds did we discover each of them on? Each species only had been found on one planet, Laura said. There it is. No known alien species has ever been found off the home world. Now, let me ask you this. How many habitable planets are there in the galaxy? Laura stopped to think. I don't know. Millions? Millions? Fair enough. The last reliable estimate I saw had the number of Earth-like planets in the minimum of 50 million with the possibility of up to 1 billion. 
has a lot of planets that can support our brand of life and the lives of the most known aliens. One more question, how many colonies do we have? Six or seven, I think, Laura said. They just found a number nine last week. And by either way, we have way more than zero. So, why? Why do humans have multiple off-world colonies and there are 14 other species that have none that in fact died on their home world? The professor asked. I, uh, I don't know, Laura said. The book you brought to ask about, the basic physics textbook. There is only a couple chapters I would assign to you to read, relatively being the main one. Can you guess why? Relativity has to do with the time changing as you go faster, right? It does, but the reason I'm assigning that book to you is so you can all get a definite sense of scale. The professor said, In Einstein's realm, nothing can ever go faster than the speed of light. Now, that that's a pretty high speed limit, but it is a limit. At speed of light, how long would it take to get to the nearest extrasolar star? Four years, right? A little over that, but yes. Now, what about the next star out? I don't know, so Laura said. That's fine, it's years, and so on, and so on. To cross from one side of the galaxy to the other would take how long at the speed of light? I don't. About a hundred thousand years, the professor said. As fast as light is, it still takes a hundred thousand years to cross the Milky Way. Modern humans, Homo sapiens, only evolved two or three hundred thousand years ago, crossing a galaxy not measured in person's lifetime. It's measured in a species lifetime. It's massive, and that's just one galaxy. There are billions of galaxies out there. The next closest galaxy would be able to take two and a half million years to reach at the speed of light. Space is mind-numbingly vast. So that's why we need to read the physics textbook for an anthropology course. We're getting there. Okay, so if you're stuck at a relativistic speed or slower, and you look around to see what's how frightening big and empty space is, what is your first reaction? To feel very small, Laura said. Yes, very, very small, but uh, suppose some clever monkey on an unremarkable world figures out that there's a way to cheat the system. Suppose these clever monkeys use this cheat to develop fantastical ships that sail through the space completely ignoring relativity. I'd feel not so small. Hope, Miss Alda, hope. Aliens looked out to the universe and saw all the empty, lonely space, and they turned back. Their civilization collapsed because it was all too much. They gave up hope. So their societies deteriorated and collapsed. We know them only by their ruins and the solitary homeworlds. You are reading a physics textbook to understand that which you study, despondency, futility, the loss of hope. But that didn't happen to us, Laura said. No, it didn't. We seem to have been the exception to the rule. When the other civilizations stared into the void, they blinked. We did not. We took it as a challenge. We created the Bach's drive. We went out into that void, screaming out defiance at every faster-than-light ship we built. For a human to understand what those other aliens went through we may never be possible. But we can glimpse in it. I've assigned that book so that we can have a basis to understand those other civilizations. Our hope. Our continued efforts in the face of overwhelming odds are what separates us from the aliens, and it is exactly what we must study. End of story. Story number two. They torture themselves. Written by friends, call me an arsehole.
council chambers, planet Urumu. Not a single sound can be heard in the council chambers, and the councillors are shocked into silence over what they had just heard. Taskmaster Burumai is aware how incredulous the assembled audience must feel about his report, how unlikely it may sound, but he doesn't have the luxury of doubting the contents of the report before him. Too often, he and his team had checked and rechecked the gathered intelligence data. After several decaseconds, Councillor Purina breaks the silence. Taskmaster, I'm afraid my knowledge about the subject matter seems to be quite a bit lacking. Could you explain your statement in more detail? How exactly does this race become, quote, immune to advanced interrogation and psychological destabilization effects? The eerie silence in the courtroom chambers were broken. One counselor after the other starts to contribute to the harmonic tones of confusion, shock, and fear. The record keepers start transcribing the emotional undertones of the situation again. Burumori admits a hesitant string of harmonics, frustration, resolution, and helplessness before focusing on the highlighted section of his intelligence summary datapad. Counselor, this answer to the question needs to be split into several subsections, as a multitude of unusual circumstances seem to be at work. Much makes it incredibly hard to deliver a conclusion easy to understand and answer your query. For this purpose, I'll address several questions which, uh, by themselves, can be covered rather easily, unlike a combination of their components. The first question we need to address is, how does a race become immune to X? The answer is this, that they're predictable as it is shocking, exposure therapy. Like pretty much all things a species can develop immunity to, the body and mind first needs to learn how to deal with the object or subject in a small and survivable dosages, which over time gets increased until both body and mind can withstand the large quantities of it. Before Burmani could continue his answer, the room swells with dissonance of surprise, fear, ridicule, anger, disbelief, disgust, and even a bit of respect. The taskmaster admits a short harmonic annoyance and urgency before continuing his report. Yes, you heard, as I believe, every single captured human we have in our intelligence acquisition center has shown this immunity, which has slowed down our war effort considerably. Without access to the source of the information, our intelligence is limited to direct accusations of operations, which are considerably more expensive to perform than interrogation. Which leads us to the second question we'll have to answer. What are the effects of psychological destabilization on a human subject? The answer to this question is even more frustrating than the first one. We do not know. A few harmonics, anger, and confusion this time, but a quick glare at the counselor Perini silences the room, allowing Bomori to continue. As far as our destabilization simply have failed to cause any form of psychological decay in our subjects. In a few cases, our destabilization techniques seem to even have the opposite effect, in which they remove signs of mental fatigue and seem to stimulate the subjects. That is not even the biggest problem, however. The most dangerous part of these prisoners is that they not only are immune to psychological destabilization, they are also adapted using it. They are in fact so proficient in it that we have lost several interrogators to breakdown syndrome and had to change interrogation protocols so that only personnel which received an advanced anti-destabilization training is allowed in the same room as them, and even they aren't completely prepared for what the humans are inflicting upon them. 
which ultimately forced us to stop all interrogation efforts because we were burning through sentient resources too quickly. Fear, shock, horror, understanding, anger, resignation. The third and last question is, to what extent is the anti-destabilization training prevalent in the human military, and can intelligence be gained by taking prisoners without said training? Belmari hesitates. The result of their analysis for the last question made him feel sick, no matter how often he read it. A quick listen to the room tells him of anticipation, dread, and hope, a mixture of many other emotions. He straightens his posture and raises his eyes from the state pad to stare directly at Perini and the other counselors. I am afraid to report that our surveillance uncovered the prevalence of this training to be at an absolute horrifying level. Unlike our first predictions, this training is neither mandatory nor limited to military of the human race. The exposure is a class 5 destabilization techniques is widespread within all branches of human government and the general population, with exposure often starting before the individual even has reached biological maturity. Due to the danger of our agents having been able to acquire intelligence about the reason behind this phenomenon, nor are we sure of how we should be able to analyze such intelligence without risking every analyst who comes in contact with the reports. Our recommendation is to stop all interrogation operations and instead transfer all resources towards PSYOPs and technology acquisition. Intelligence Acquisition Center, Prison Cell D3V2H A week prior, Private Johnson watched on in confusion as a screaming alien was dragged out of his cell by several aliens wearing ear protection. Before the door to his cell was sealed shut for the outside, he had liked this alien. After he and his squad had been captured during a mission, they had been transferred to this prison complex, where they had been interrogated over a few days. At first, it had been afraid that these aliens might result to torture, but luckily, he was never harmed, and his stay was mostly boring, which is why he was genuinely happy from the side-desk group arrived, whatever that is, and started the conversation about the meaningless of existence. Johnson was never that interested in philosophy, but even if he was able to recognize nihilism when he heard it, and so he was more than happy to contribute to the discussion, even if he wasn't completely sure of just how horribly he might be gobbled up the arguments of Nietzsche. Judging by the distant screams and the interrogator, probably rather badly, Johnson decided, and promised himself that he would apologize at the next opportunity. End of chapter and that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.